All right, I am in Psalm 63. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to, to join me in this psalm. We're going to talk about joy and trials, just a theme that jumps out of the book of Philippians. It so jumps out of so many of the psalms, and I think it's especially powerful here in the 63rd psalm. The 63rd psalm is, uh, every once in a while, there's a, I'm reminded there's a passage in the Bible that we don't make enough of, and I think this is probably one of them. Like everybody knows Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I think we should know Psalm 63 almost like that one. You know, Chrysostom, who's one of the Greek church fathers, he said that in the earliest Christians, it was encouraged that not a single day would pass without singing Psalm 63. That's how important this particular psalm was to the early church. And so I want to begin by marking out here, uh, but just kind of get a, get a long ramp to where we're going as we talk about joy and trials there are three, at least three ways or three feelings that we get when we get into tough times. And that's the context of the psalm. We're going to talk about this in a minute. David is running from Absalom. He's in the wilderness. And David here in verse 1 says, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. David chooses to seek after God. When people find themselves in trials, there are three kinds of negative emotions, so to speak, that we're tempted towards. And I want to mark out these three before we begin really getting to the psalm. First of all, there's feelings of resentment, feelings of resentment. This is a pretty common theme in Scripture, and it's not one we have to work too hard to see in our world today. When we get into a time when we have trials, when there's suffering, when we feel like we're owed and something's not coming our way, we grow this bitterness towards God and others. There's a temptation to become very resentful. In fact, one of the earliest stories in Scripture is when Cain kills Abel. And it says that God did not regard the offering or the sacrifices of Cain. There's a lot of reasons that Cain's offering may have been rejected. But what commentators pretty much agree on is the way Cain knew that is because he was very unsuccessful. Things were not happening in his fields. Uh, he wasn't successful in life. And therefore, he very much felt like God had rejected him. And so what did Cain do? Instead of seeking after God, these feelings of resentment grow, and Cain goes after Abel and attacks him in the field. And so that's one of the things that we often do. We grow very resentful. This happened in another story in Genesis with Jacob and Esau. Jacob, of course, steals the birthright from Esau. We're not going to justify what Jacob did. But then for the rest of his life, Esau is moved with bitterness. Esau is such an example of bitterness in the Bible that thousands of years later, the writer of Hebrews uses him as the primary example of somebody in a trial that grew resentful, turned away from God, and started going his own way. Well, how about even somebody like Moses? Who's more God-centered than Moses? If it can happen to Moses, it can happen to the best of us. Moses goes into the wilderness. He's leading the people. They're extremely difficult to lead. And of course, Moses is feeling to himself, hey, I didn't sign up for this. He gets very angry. It doesn't really come out at God as much as people, but God identifies his anger at people is really something that's projected, you know, in his relationship with God. So sometimes when trials come, we get very resentful. We feel like we're owed something and it just didn't come to pass and we get very upset. I worked really hard at this relationship and it didn't go well. You feel betrayed. Or you feel opposed at work. Or maybe things don't go well just in your family. You put all this time in and you just begin to grow resentful and bitter. 
And this is the point at which we start to blame other people for our problems. We get angry with God. We get angry with people. That's what Cain did. That's what Moses did. That, of course, is what Esau does. And the same thing can happen with us. Number two, let's talk about feelings of despair or hopelessness. A lot of times when trials come our way, we become to feel very hopeless, despair. Here's a great definition of despair. I once heard somebody said, despair means you've turned your back on hope. That's pretty good, turned your back on hope. For example, we see this with Elijah under the juniper tree, where he says, I am no better than my father's. And here's a great prophet that just prior to this was calling down fire from heaven and consuming the false prophets. But now he realizes this did nothing to change anybody because now Jezebel is still chasing me, the queen, the wicked queen. He grows very discouraged. He's in a trial. So what does he do? He sits under the juniper tree and he's full of despair. I am no better than my father. He says, Lord, take my life. In other words, I have no hope. The disciples there at the cross, they look at Jesus dying on the cross, the rabbi they followed for three years. There's a lot of despair in there as they part and go back to their old professions. Yeah, I go efficient, Peter says. Translation, I'm not doing this apostle thing anymore. And the others follow in Peter's footsteps. What is that? That's Peter to a degree, turning his back on hope. What do we do with Psalm 42? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you full of turmoil within me? That is trials that are tempting the psalmist towards these feelings of despair. And sometimes that can happen with us. We almost feel swallowed by a trial. Uh, feel like we've turned our backs on hope, or better yet, hope has turned its back on us. You know what the darkest psalm in the Psalter is? Uh, most would agree it's Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is the only psalm that is completely void of hope. You say it's got to be in there somewhere. Go ahead and read it. See if you can find it. Void of hope. It's the only one. You know how Psalm 88 ends? You know what the last line is? Darkness is my only friend. I know people that feel that way. I feel like there's times in my life, sometimes I've felt that way. Darkness is my only friend. You just feel like you're in despair. Sometimes when things don't go our way or trials come into our lives, sometimes we get very resentful, angry at others. Other times we're not moved in that direction. We just grow with a lot of despair. The third way that sometimes people go when they're in trials is self-pity. Some people blame everybody else for all their problems. Others of us blame ourselves for every problem in the world. We kind of grow with self-pity. And rather than seek God and seek his forgiveness, we just send into this perpetual mound of guilt that we just can't get out from under. And we start to feel like everything in the world is wrong because of us. Even things, frankly, that have nothing to do with us. And we start to feel that because we have sinned or made mistakes, there is no hope for us in God. Psalm 63 is a psalm where David is running from Absalom. The other one is Psalm 3. And in Psalm 3, and we're going to talk about this, David is running from Absalom. To some degree, this is David's fault. I mean, he has made an absolute mess of his family uh, he's not only made bad decisions, but he didn't deal with some, frankly, crimes that have taken place right in his own house. And therefore, his whole house is kind of in chaos. And so David flees into the wilderness, and he's chased by his son Absalom. And this is how Psalm 3 opens. O Lord, how many of my foes are rising up against me, saying, there is no salvation for him in God. So contextualize this for a minute. 
David is in a great trial, and the voice that David is hearing is what? There is no salvation for him in God. You know what that means? David, you've sinned away your day of grace. You've done so many bad things, God would never come and help you right now. That's what the people are saying. Physical, literal people were saying that to David. I've never heard anybody physically, literally say that today. But boy, there is that voice in our heads that kind of echoes that, doesn't it? You've made so many mistakes. You've made so many sins. You've made such a mess of this. There is no way that God is going to help you right now. There is no help for you in God. I remember the first time I made a visit to a prison where somebody that was attending RBC was arrested. They were going to go away for a number of years for a crime that they committed. And I remember them crying and saying, what, what do I do? What do I, I don't even know what to pray. And it was Psalm 3 that the Lord brought to mind that I ended up reading to them. This is the voice you're going to hear. There is no help for him in God. You've got to read the rest of the psalm. Because God never leaves us or forsakes us when we turn back to him. But you know, sometimes we're moved with resentment. We get really mad at people, feelings of resentment. We've all seen this. Maybe we've done this. Sometimes it's despair. You just sit under the juniper tree like Elijah. Just feel like you're going to die. Darkness is my greatest friend. And other times we're kind of moved with self-pity or guilt. We just can't seem to seek the forgiveness of God. Can't get over that thing you've done. Can't get over the feeling that God would help other people, but why would he help you at all? What David does here is he rejects these common responses that we find in Scripture and we find in Ridgefield and Connecticut and in the world today. And instead, he seeks the Lord. Look at verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Absalom is the third son of David. Absalom, by the way, was like... uh, I don't know, Captain America in the ancient world. There's a verse in 1 Samuel 14 that says he was absolutely beautiful without blemish from head to toe. That's Absalom. He's the kind of guy you looked at, didn't have a blemish. He was chiseled. He was good looking. He was stately. He was funny. He had, he's the guy you look at and say he's got all the gifts. This is just unfair. That was Absalom, the third son of David. There was a sex crime that was committed, not only in the empire but right under David's nose in his house. And David just refused to deal with that crime. It was with his children. Absalom got so fed up that he went and dealt with it himself. Kind of became vigilante justice, so to speak, in the ancient world. And that put him and David kind of against each other. Absalom runs off into the wilderness, takes some of the army with him. And over time, because people started to realize that some of this was David's fault, the favor of the people started to shift towards Absalom. And when Absalom had enough power and he started to seek David, David realized what was going on and David fled into the wilderness from his son Absalom who wanted to be king. Somewhere in the wilderness, and we're not sure where, there's David maybe sitting under a tree followed by his mighty men who circled around him, keeping their eyes open for the army of Absalom. And David pulls out a quill and pulls out a scroll And what he pens, you and I have right before us here in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Early, earnest, do I seek you. Let me give you three thoughts real quick before I get to the heart of the message. Just quickly, three ways that David seeks God. Because I want us to really think about this this Thanksgiving season. First of all, David sought God prayerfully. Prayerfully. 
Psalm 63 is what we call a lament. There's lament language in here. A lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trusting God. When you and I cry out to God in our pain, that is biblically called a lament. Um, A lament can be very long. The book of Lamentations is one long lament. A lament can be very short, like the book of Job. Naked I was born, naked I will return to the, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a lament. A lament can be kind of quiet and in your heart. A lament can be extremely demonstrative, where you're crying out to God in the ancient world, they'd rip their clothes. There's all kinds of ways that the Jewish people would lament, but all of those laments have this one thing in common. It's a prayer in pain that leads to trusting God, and that's what we have before us. Let me just make a point here and say this. If you're a Christian, lament is God's gift to the church. The cynic laughs. The secularist cries. The church laments. It's a prayer in pain that leads to trusting God. You know what lament is? You have the lights go out in your house, you know, and you go find that flashlight, it's kind of a dim flashlight, and you start to look for the fuse box, or maybe you've got to find the generator and turn it on, whatever your protocol, oil lamps, whatever you do. That flashlight is kind of a way to kind of get light into the house and find that source of power. You know what lament is? Lament is like a flashlight in the darkness. It's the dim light that helps us find God in the darkness. When you find yourself surrounded by darkness, and frankly, you're not even sure what else to do, What does the psalmist do? Cries out to God and laments. And that lament becomes like a flashlight to find God. What we discover here in the psalm, by the way, is that the trial does not crush David. The trial brings David closer to God. We know from scripture and life that the same sun that softens wax hardens clay. And the trials that come into our life never leave us where they find us. It's like a little kid that jumps in a puddle after church right out here in the parking lot, you know. Some of you, that's your kid. Thankfully not today. The water goes somewhere. It can go left, it can go right. But that puddle's never going to be the same. When a trial comes into our life, it can harden our hearts or it can soften our hearts towards God. It never leaves us where it finds us, though. And in David's case, it starts to move his heart towards God because he's lamenting. He's lamenting before the Lord. Uh, it's a great illustration of this with the prophet Amos. You know what Amos did for a living? He was a fig picker. How's that? A fig picker. And in the ancient world, the way they would pick figs is before they would ripen. There, there's a kind of fig that only ripens when it's traumatized. So the fig picker would go along with a stick or a little knife, and they would smack the figs. You grab it in your hand and whack. <laughs> you go to the next one, whack. And, and, and that would help ripen the fig. Or they'd take a little knife and poke it. But you have to traumatize the fig in order for it to ripen and become mature. It's a great verse in Hebrews 12 that tells us that trials in our life bring forth peaceable fruits of righteousness. That's what's happening in David's life. He's traumatized by the trial. But it doesn't crush him. It ripens him. And it makes him stronger. And it makes him more mature in his relationship with God. He doesn't grow bitter. He doesn't grow despair. What does David do? He seeks the Lord. I have a friend from years ago that went through a terrible crisis. As a pastor, you walk with people through a lot of crises. This is one of the top two or three in my life. And I remember sitting across from this person, and I remember thinking to myself, the way they're seeking God 
if in my moments of honesty, I'm not sure if I was where they were, I would, I would be seeking like they were. I, I, I wasn't sure. And, I, and I, I asked, I said, how is it that you're finding the strength to seek the Lord? And I remember this person looking back and he's saying this. They said, as soon as I got the news, and believe me, the news was catastrophic. As soon as I got the news, the very first thing I said, I'm not going to get bitter at God. I'm not going to get bitter at God. I'm going to seek him. And I've thought about that now for, what, a decade and a half. That should be the first response of every one of us. When a trial comes into your life, very first thing, Lord, I'm not going to grow angry. I'm not going to grow resentful. I'm not going to hit despair. And I'm not going to be the self-pity person. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to do the Psalm 63 thing. Oh, God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. So first of all, so he's speaking very prayerfully. Number two, he's seeking earnestly, earnestly. Oh, God, you are my God. Early or in earnest will I seek you. Translations go one of two ways on this. Some of your translations might say early. Some might say in earnest. And the reason is the Hebrew word means break, like the break of day. And so the literal translation is early will I seek you. No doubt David sought God early in the day. But it also has the idea of earnest because everything you do early in the day you give priority to. So the idea there is earnestly will I seek you. And so David here is showing a very earnest seeking. Let me just give you a note and a thought here. There are absolutely extravagant promises made to people that seek God. I mean extravagant. You will seek me and find me when you seek with all your heart. That's extravagant. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Isn't that a beautiful extravagant promise to you if we'll seek God? But in all these verses, and I could list off 20 more and you could add to them. In all these verses, that promise is not to the casual seeker. That's to the earnest seeker. One of my favorite verses in scripture is Hebrews 12. It's one of the verses there. Uh, um, uh, rather 11, verse 6 in the Hall of Faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is. Get this. He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. He's not a rewarder of those that seek him. He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So the promise is extravagant, but the promise is to those that will seek God in an exceptional way. Number three, seeking personally. Oh God, you are my God. Early or earnest will I seek you. It all flows from here. If you and I can say verse one, oh God, you are my God, then we can say the rest of the psalm. But if we can't say verse 1, I think we're going to have a hard time with the other 10 verses. And so it's a very personal relationship with God. This is a personal relationship that is reviving the soul of David here as he's in a trial. And when I say we're going to talk about seeking God, we're talking about prayerfully, earnestly, and personally. Those three things are always involved. All right. As we look into the psalm, I want to give you three things that happen as David begins to seek God. First thing is this. Now, I'll start with D. They're really easy. First of all, God becomes his desire. Desire. Let me just show you the verses. Verse 1. O God, you are my God. Early, earnest will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where no water is. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, 
My lips will praise your name. What David is experiencing here is communion with God. And that's what I want us to think about. That you and I, despite our trials, we can have sweet communion with God. Our trials don't have to keep us from communion with God. We can enjoy communion with God. Now, one of the problems we have, listen, because your love is better than life, my lips will praise your name. One of the problems we have in our world today is, is people, they have a thirst and a hunger in their souls, but they don't really know how to fill it. So we fill it with everything except God. If you watch the, the movie Jaws, uh, there's a place on the boat where Quinn, remember Quinn, the, the crazy kind of captain? He starts telling that story about the USS Indianapolis. It's a true story. And listen carefully. What happened there is in World War II, I think it was 1945, uh, the, the, the ship uh, was hit by a Japanese torpedo. There were 1,200 on board. 300 died immediately. 900 made it into the water. They were on a mission that was so secret that very few people knew they were out there. So it's going to take four days for any rescue or any help to come. For four days, those 900, as long as they could survive, were in the water. It's called the greatest shark attack of all time. That's why it's in the movie Jaws. And Quinn talks about how the sharks came. By the time they were rescued, I think there were 317 people left out of the 900. And for years, that's how this story was understood. This is the greatest shark attack ever. No doubt it was the greatest shark attack ever. But when you go back and you read eyewitness accounts, and there's only a couple of them, but the men that were actually in the water, they put far little emphasis on the sharks and far more emphasis on something else. You know what it is? People started to drink the seawater after four days. Granville Crane, he was the youngest man on that boat. How many of you have teenagers? You have teenagers? 16 years old when that boat went down. Imagine your 16-year-old. That is terrifying. Listen to what Granville Crane says. He said this just a few years ago. He's in his 90s now. He, he said, men began drinking salt water, so much so they were delirious. In fact, a lot of them had weapons like knives. They were so crazy, they are fighting among themselves and killing each other. And then there's others that drank so much salt water, they were seeing things. They'd say, the Indy, that's the boat, the Indy is down below. They're giving out fresh water and food in the gallery, in the galley, and they start swimming down to it. See, Granville Crane is telling us the same thing we know. Salt water is going to quench your immediate thirst, but in due time, it really leads you towards dehydration. That's the picture of idolatry in Scripture, that there are things that quench the soul in the immediate but in the long run, they actually dehydrate the soul. When we start to make our job the most important thing that we do, or we start to make a human relationship the most important thing in the world, or our money, or our cars, or our hobbies, or health, whatever it may be, we soon find out that it quenches the immediate thirst, but it dehydrates the soul in the long run. David understands this. Because your love is better than life, because this relationship with God is the most important thing I have, my lips will praise your name. Look at what David is doing. I long to see you in the sanctuary. The reason I'm impressed by this is when I'm in the wilderness, I don't say these things. You know? I say things like, I long to get lotto numbers in advance. <laughs> you know? I long for my back to stop aching. I don't play lotto, by the way. That's just kind of a... <laughs> 
I long for all my problems to be solved. And I don't doubt we should pray for our problems to be solved. But David says, I long to see your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will praise your name. The psalmist here is telling us that we can enjoy communion with God. And we could spend time talking about this. We have union with God. Union with God is that relationship we have with God. It's, you ever get that strange language in the New Testament? We are baptized with Christ. It's mysterious. We are in Christ. He is in us and we are in him. That's called union language. That's a theological term. It's called union language. We are joined together with Christ. If you open a theology book, they'll tell you that's union language. That means that we are joined to Christ in some mystical union, some really impressive mystical union. It's kind of like the ocean. You see the surface, but if you dive down deep, it's really, really hard to get to the bottom. When you start to think about union with Christ, we kind of all understand it up here, but even the theologians can't get all the way to the bottom of this thing. It's union with Christ. That's what David expresses in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. He has union with Christ. Think of a marriage. That's a union. That's a covenant. Or perhaps at work, there's a union. People are joined together. That's union language. You can have union with Jesus. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have communion with Jesus. But as David seeks the Lord, not only does he have union. That's where the communion comes in in verse 3. Because your love is better than life, my lips will praise your name. You know, you can be in a marriage, right? Maybe it's a season of marriage. But there's a lot of animosity and you're not talking to your spouse. You have union, but you don't have communion. And the same thing can be true of God. In the wilderness, we can have true communion with God. By the way, look at the twin truths. You gotta, this is, as you seek God, these things become more and more important to us. He says, I, your love is better than life. My lips will praise your name. And then verse 2, I behold your power and your glory. You have to believe these two things about God. You've got to believe, number one, he is able, he's powerful. And number two, he loves me. One of those two will not do. If your God loves you, but he is not able to help you, that's not helpful. That's nice to have somebody hold your hand when you're hurting, but they can't do anything about the problem. On the other hand, it's really nice when someone can do something about the problem, but if they don't love me, they're not going to do anything about the problem. It's not just that he is able, it's that he's willing. And we've got to hold both of those together. Our God is able and he's willing. Number two, God is our delight. He's not only our, our desi- uh, 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 delight, uh, desire, he's our delight. Verse 8 says, my soul shall be satisfied with rich food. My mouth will praise you, my joyful lips. So when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of night, for you have been my help in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings for you, your right hand upholds me. There's all these ideas on here that David is hungry for God. He's hungry for that relationship with God. It says in verse 5, he's going to eat fat and rich food. You know what rich food is? Rich food is the food that the priest would give to God. And you know what this is saying? God's going to share his portion with me. This is really good. David's excited about this. And then it says this in verse 6, right? The night watches. I remember you upon my bed. I meditate on you in the night watches. You get the picture here? Verse 1, what did he do? Oh, God, you are my God. Early do I seek you. 
And by the time he gets to verse 6, it's night, and what's he doing now? He's still seeking. That's amazing. In other words, he is intentionally seeking God in the morning, in the afternoon, at night. Let me tell you how my day usually works. You may have a different experience. Well, it's kind of like this. I, I heard about a hunter once that bought a dog, right? And uh, the, the, he takes the dog out into the woods, and he's going to track a bear, okay? So the dog, the old hound dog, gets on the scent of the bear, starts tracking the bear. But somewhere along the way, there's a deer that earlier that day crossed the path of the bear. And so now, once the dog, unbeknownst to the hunter, picks up the scent of the deer, he starts going after the deer. But earlier the day, there was a rabbit that crossed the path of the deer. And so now the dog, unbeknownst to the hunter, is chasing the rabbit. And by the time the hunter gets all the way to the end where he's barking, the dog is barking down a mouse hole. <laughs> okay? That's how my day works. I wake up, I set my thoughts on God, and, well, it's this way, then it's this way, and it's this way, and I'm all over the place. David is constantly coming back to the Lord. He's constantly resetting his heart and his life. Early will I seek you, all the way upon the night watches. He's desiring God. He's delighting in God. He's under the wings of God. I love verse 8, where it says that, your soul, My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Do you see that? Think about this. God is holding on to David. And David says, I'm holding on to God. Uh, you, go hunt, you go hiking. We were at Sturgis last week with the kids, you know. And there's a lot of roots and things like that. The kids will run and, you know, a little kid might trip over the roots or something like that. Picture a father or a mother just walking with their kid in the woods. A little two-year-old maybe holding his hand or her hand. And that little child trips over the root and falls. And a little child starts to grip down on mommy's hand. But what happens at the same time? Mommy starts to grip down on the child's hand. The child will come up thinking, yeah, I stood strong because I held on to mommy. But in reality, you and I know, no, the child stands because mommy gripped on to you. You and I, we walk through this life, we start clinging on to God. You know what? We look hindsight, though, and we find out that our walk with God is much more about him holding on to us than us holding on to him. And that's what David's expressing here. David is longing for God. By the way, he doesn't have perfect communion with God here. Don't make a mistake of thinking David is in sweet bliss here. This is future tense. Did you know that? Did you notice that? Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied. My mouth will praise you. What David is expressing here is everything's not perfect in my soul, but it's going to be that way because of God. He's very hopeful. He's like Abraham who left to look for the city. He's like Moses who wandered the desert but found hope as he knew he would be in the promised land. The psalmist doesn't live in a life that's so different than ours. It's not total bliss. It's not euphoria. But he's inspired by hope. Last one is this. God is our defender. Verse 9 through 11. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the pits, the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of the liar shall be stopped. You know what's implied in this passage? The pits that were dug for David, those enemies are going to be in the pits. The sword they're chasing David with will be turned back on the enemy. They're chasing David into the desert. But it's the enemies that will feel the shame of the desert because they're devoured by jackals. In other words, 
God, don't lose me, this is important. God is going to take the weapon of the enemy and turn it back on himself. God is so powerful that he's not just going to get David around the sword, he's going to use the sword. He's so powerful, he's not just going to take the move David around the obstacle, he's going to use the obstacle in David's life. He is David's defender. And that story of Esther, there's wicked Haman who makes the gallows for Mordecai. And by the end of the story, who's hanging on those gallows? Haman himself. There they are, wandering through the wilderness in the book of Exodus. And there's David, uh, rather Moses, who's leading the people. And they come up to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is the obstacle. The Red Sea is the enemy at that moment because they can't get through it and the Egyptian army is chasing them from behind. The staff goes up, the sea parts, Israel walks through, Egypt follows, and you know the story. The waters come and swallow the Egyptians. That is God taking a liability and turning it into an asset. That is God taking the obstacle and using it for the favor of his people and the glory of his own name. And I want to tell you, that's exactly what God does in the gospel of Jesus. Where there on the cross, Jesus hangs and he dies. And it's a horrible, tragic death. So much so that nobody really understands what's going on at that moment. But the same death that threatened the life of Jesus is going to turn out to be the same death that's going to be the salvation of his people. That is God taking the liability and turning it into an asset. God is our defender. He is the one that goes out and fights the battle before us. I believe this. I don't believe we always see it in this life. But I believe the obstacles that you and I face, God doesn't only get us around those. He uses those. In the same way Haman is going to hang on his own gallows and the sea swallows the Egyptian army and the enemies fall over their own swords here, and the wilderness devours those that chase David into it, God can do the same for us. God can do the same for us. You want to know what David's assurance is? This is the last verse. We'll close on this. The king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. There's a lot here, but I just want you to know, circumstances do not in any way, shape, or form alter David's calling, does not alter David's identity. Even while he is running, he is still the anointed king. Even while they're about to take his life, same is true of you, my friend. Find yourself in the wilderness, find yourself persecuted, find yourself suffering. That does not in any way, shape, or form change your status as a child of God. I was reading Revelation 1 this week. Grace to you and peace from him who was and is and is to come, this is Jesus, the seven spirits that are before him and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. Now get this, to him who loves us, has freed us from our sins, made us a kingdom of priests to God the Father. John is writing to a persecuted church. His people are running for their lives. And what does he say to them? What does he say to us? You are a kingdom of priests. You are a kingdom of anointed people. Bad circumstances don't in any way, shape, or form change our standing before God. That's our assurance that God is our defender. He's our delight. He's our desire. 
He's our defender. It all starts with verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnest do I seek you. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for loving us and caring about us. Speak to our hearts today. I pray, Lord, especially for those that are hurting, those that are finding great obstacle in their path. You have the ability to use that Red Sea, not just get people around it, but use it to swallow the enemy. Those that face the metaphorical gallows created by the metaphorical Haman, you can use those gallows, Lord, for your glory. The writer even says, the wrath of man praises God. So, Lord, I pray that we would move with confidence and assurance. Be our delight, be our desire, be our defender. And all glory is yours in Jesus' name. Amen.